Hi, I'm Robert Jeffress, and I'm glad to serve as your Bible teacher every day on this great radio station on today's edition of Pathway to Victory. In Luke chapter 2, he allows us in the stable to see the single most important birth of all time, the birth of Jesus Christ. It's fitting then that it was Dr. Luke who was also the one to record the multiple births that occurred on the day of Pentecost. That's what we're going to talk about today as we talk about the birthday of the church. Welcome to Pathway to Victory with author and pastor, Dr. Robert Jeffress. To most Christians, the church is something really that's always been around. New churches, historic churches, large churches, small churches, you name it. But sometimes we forget that the church is relatively new. Today on Pathway to Victory, Dr. Robert Jeffress teaches about the moment in time when the church was born. Now, here's our Bible teacher to introduce today's message. Dr. Jeffress. Thanks, David, and welcome to a brand new week of studying the Bible together on Pathway to Victory. I've decided to spend the entire month of June talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ from the first century. These men and women were the first to follow Jesus, and they did so while facing tremendous pressure from their critics. This new teaching series based on the book of Acts has never been shared on Pathway to Victory until now. It's called Unstoppable Power. In the first century, the Roman Empire was extremely hostile toward this new movement of Christ followers. They wanted nothing more than to snuff out their enthusiasm for Christ. And here's the thing. Their journey parallels our own journey today. You see, I believe American Christians, as well as Christians around the world, are facing a season of untold persecution. Those who love Christ are in the crosshairs of a growing army of critics. So, in this new series, we will grow to admire the courage of our brothers and sisters who went before us and their willingness to forge ahead with boldness. They were truly unstoppable. For this reason and more, several friends of Pathway to Victory have agreed to set aside a matching challenge so that every dollar you give to support this ministry will be automatically matched by them and therefore doubled in size. We're calling this the Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. When you give a generous gift to this matching challenge today, I'll make sure you receive a copy of my brand new book called Unstoppable Power based on the book of Acts. I'm going to describe my book in greater detail later in the program, and we'll also give our contact information so that you can participate in the matching challenge as well. But right now, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Acts. I titled today's message, The Birthday of the Church. When each of my daughters was born, I had the privilege of being in the delivery room with my video camera to record the whole event. I wasn't allowed into the delivery room when the triplets were born, but I'm told the scene best resembled the storming of the beaches at Normandy on D-Day when that happened. Ryan, you were there. There were three different teams of doctors, uh, neonatal specialists, uh, anesthesiologists, all there to take care of those multiple births. I was thinking of that this week as I prepared the message from Acts chapter 2 about the birth of the church. Remember both Acts and Luke, the gospel, were written by a physician, Dr. Luke. And in Luke chapter 2, he allows us in the delivery room, the stable, 
to see the single most important birth of all time, the birth of Jesus Christ. It's fitting then that it was Dr. Luke who was also the one to record the multiple births that occurred on the day of Pentecost, when not just one individual or even triplets were born, 3,000 people were born again on the same day. And the reverberations of that miraculous event still reverberate in our lives today. That's what we're going to talk about today as we talk about the birthday of the church. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2. We're studying the account of the early church and its mission to take the gospel into all the world. We're going to look at Acts 2, what we call the day of Pentecost. And there's an overriding theme I want you to write down. If we desire to be a supernatural church, one that turns the world upside down with the gospel, there are three characteristics of a supernatural church. It is spirit-empowered, it is Christ-centered, and it is mission-focused. And today, we're going to look at the first of those three characteristics. A true supernatural church is spirit-empowered. Now, if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 of Acts 2. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. They were in that upper room. They were praying, and out of nowhere, they hear this violent, what sounds like a rushing wind, and it filled the whole house. And then look at verse 3. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each of them. There were about 120 people, Luke tells us, in that upper room, the earliest disciples of the Lord, including Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it looked like a fire from heaven came down, and then it separated into 120 different tongues resting on each of those individual disciples. And uh, what is it they were experiencing? They were experiencing what had been promised for hundreds of years, the baptism with the Holy Spirit of God. What is the baptism with the Spirit? Let me give you this definition because it's key to understanding what this is and what it is that happens to us as well. The baptism with the Holy Spirit, write this down, is the supernatural act of God in which Christ immerses believers with the Holy Spirit, joining them to himself and to other Christians. And that leads to the question, who receives the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Well, you notice in this upper room where the 120 were praying, when the Holy Spirit fell, he fell upon each one of those disciples. God didn't come down and say, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Okay, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you can have it. You pray enough. Yeah, you're spiritual enough. No, each one was baptized. The same thing is true of the Corinthians. Paul said the Corinthians, looking back, for with one spirit, you were all baptized. Think about these Corinthian Christians. They were some of the most ungodly Christians you've ever met. They were sleeping around on their wives. They were engaged in immorality. They were even getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. And yet Paul says, you were baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
If you don't remember anything else I say this morning, remember this. When you were saved, you get all of the Holy Spirit of God. The question is not whether you have all of the Holy Spirit, but does he have all of you? And that's why in the Bible, you find the command to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, Ephesians 5.18. That word filled doesn't mean pour into, it means literally to control. The word is used in Greek to refer to the wind that fills up the mast of a ship and directs it in a certain direction. When you are filled with the Holy Spirit of God, you are controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. And when did this happen? What is the timing of the baptism with the Holy Spirit? It's when we're saved. Again, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for with one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. There were no Corinthians who were sitting around the church waiting for the Holy Spirit yet to come. He came at the moment of salvation. Now, I know there's some of you Bible students who are probably saying, well, wait a minute, pastor. Aren't there some times in the Bible when the Holy Spirit came after a person's conversion? Didn't he come sometimes a long time after their conversion? There are only three times in the book of Acts where it appears that the Holy Spirit came later. Let's look at those real quickly. The first time is in the passage we're looking at right now, Acts 2, 1 to 4. These 120 disciples who were in the upper room, they had been following Jesus Christ for three years, and yet they had not been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Why is it that the Holy Spirit came later? Well, that's easy. Jesus told us that the Spirit couldn't come until he went back into heaven. And so there had to be a one time when the Holy Spirit came. It was a one-time coming after Christ ascended into heaven. The second instance of a delay in the coming of the Holy Spirit is found in Acts 8, 14 through 17. There were some people who lived in Samaria who became Christians. They trusted in Christ, but the Holy Spirit did not come immediately. In fact, he didn't come into their lives until the Jewish leaders of the church, Peter John and others came to visit them in Samaria. Only then did the Holy Spirit come. The only other time there's a delay between salvation and the baptism with the, the, the Spirit, or there appears to be a delay, and it is in Acts 19. This is so interesting to me. Remember at verses 1 to 7, the Apostle Paul was traveling through the upper region of Ephesus, and he came across a group of men and like any evangelist, he wanted to know whether they were saved or not, whether they knew Christ as Savior. He asked these Samaritans, have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? To him, that was the norm. That was the greatest sign, whether you're saved or not, because the norm for every Christian is, if you're saved, you've been baptized with the Spirit. How did they answer that question? They said, we don't know what you're talking about. What Holy Spirit? Paul thought, hmm, we've got a problem here. So he says, what now, have you been baptized? Yeah, into whose baptism? We're baptized by John the baptizer. Oh, that's the problem. No, you have to be identified with Jesus, baptized with Jesus' gospel. That's the problem. The reason they hadn't received the Holy Spirit is they weren't saved yet. They were followers of John the Baptist, but not of Jesus Christ. He preached the gospel to them. They were saved, and they were immediately baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. Since Acts 19, the pattern is the same. Every true believer 
was baptized with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, look at verse 4. The sign of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Verse 4. And they were all filled, controlled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout, devout men from every nation under heaven. Some had moved to Jerusalem permanently. Some were there for the Pentecost celebration. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Gal Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? This is the first instance in the Bible of what we call speaking in other tongues. They spoke in other tongues, this passage says, heteros glosis, other languages. It's plural. Interestingly, most people agree with that, that the first instance of speaking in tongues is the ability to speak an actual language. The question they need to answer is, how did it change from that into a private prayer language? Well, I'll answer that in just a few moments. But the original gift of tongues was the ability to speak in a language you didn't know, and it served two purposes. Number one, the propagation of the gospel. Look at verse 6, and when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Apparently what happened was these disciples who had been baptized with the Holy Spirit left the upper room, they came to the general area of the temple, and they were witnessing. They were speaking of the mighty acts of God to these Jews from other countries in the empire that couldn't speak Hebrew. They were there, and the way they heard the gospel before Peter stood up to preach, as we'll see next time, was individuals were speaking to them in a language they could understand. Now, isn't that a genius plan of God? If he wanted to supercharge the church and the gospel to take advantage of all of these people from all over the Roman Empire who had come to Jerusalem, gathered together, and give the gospel to them in a way that they could understand it, you know... Our staff knows how I hate the term soft launch. People say, well, pastor, we've got a new ministry and we're going to do a soft launch. We're not going to tell anybody about it. We'll just let word seep out and so forth. That's destined to fail. If you're going to do something, do it big. Let everybody know about it. That was the church. It wasn't any soft launch to it. It was an explosive beginning. It turbocharged the gospel so that thousands of people could hear and be sent to the uttermost parts of the earth. The propagation of the gospel was the first purpose of the gift of tongues. Secondly, the authentication of the apostles. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle are performed among you with all perseverance, signs and wonders and miracles. The ability to speak in a language they didn't know was a supernatural uh, proof that these apostles were truly speaking the word of God. I mean, think about it. These apostles were saying to Jews that what you've been following for the last 1,500 years is no longer valid. There's a new way, a new covenant, a new arrangement with God. How did they know these people were speaking truth? How did they know they really were God's representatives? It was their ability to perform signs and wonders. Today, the way we 
judge whether the pastor is speaking God's truth is not whether he can raise people from the dead or speak in tongues or do miracles. It's whether or not I teach according to the Bible. But in those early days, there was no New Testament. There was no way to judge the authenticity of an apostle. By the way, could I just say this about spiritual gifts? Never in the Bible are spiritual gifts given for your own edification. Never are spiritual gifts given to make you feel warm and fuzzy in your relationship with God. You don't use spiritual gifts to minister to yourself. You don't use them to minister to God. God doesn't need your spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts in the Bible are always for the benefit of others, to build up others. And that's what the gift of tongues was. It was a gift to help others hear and understand the gospel. So then how did it turn from this in 33 AD to this ecstatic language that Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he wrote that 20 years later. How did it change? Well, I don't think it ever did change. People changed it. Many Bible scholars will say that these Corinthian carnal Christians were bringing into their Christian worship service a practice that came from the pagan temples they had been part of called ecstasy. In their worship of these pagan deities, they would work themselves up in a frenzy. They would start sounding this loud uh, gong. Remember Paul talked about the resounding gong in 1 Corinthians 13? They would work themselves up into a frenzy and start speaking gibberish to their pagan gods. They loved the emotional rush they got from doing that. And many believe the Corinthians brought that into the church. And they counterfeited the true gift of tongues, which was the gift of languages, into this perversion of tongues. Whatever you believe about tongues, understand this, that after Corinthians, where it was only dealt with in a problem sense, you never hear of the gift of tongues again in the New Testament. Never talked about in Romans, the treatise of the Christian faith. It's never mentioned in any of the epistles. In the last epistles, Paul's 2 Timothy or 2 Peter, not a word about it. It was a temporary gift, mainly for the propagation of the gospel and the authentication of the apostles. And it was a prelude to what we're going to see next week is the first and the greatest sermon ever preached. Now, let me close today with two timeless truths that these early verses in Acts 2 teach us today. First of all, write this down. As a church, we have been given the same mission as the early church. We have the same mission. The, the mission statement is still operational. We are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. No, we don't have the ability to speak in languages we don't know, but we've got even greater gifts and abilities. I mean, just think about technology we have that the early church didn't have. Transportation we have that the early church didn't have. But it's all for the same purpose. We harness that and use it for the propagation of the gospel. We have the same mission. Secondly, as individual believers, we have been baptized with the same spirit as the apostle we're all baptized into the same body and we have the same Holy Spirit. And ladies and gentlemen, you don't have to beg, barter, or plead with God to give you his Holy Spirit. He gives that Holy Spirit to you the moment you are saved. 
And that Holy Spirit of God is available to you right now to do supernatural works in your life that far exceed speaking in another language. You say, what are you talking about? What supernatural things can God's Spirit do through me? Well, first of all, he provides you a peace, a supernatural peace when the world around you is collapsing. He gives you the supernatural power to say no to sin. Sin has no more power over your life than you choose to allow it to have. The Holy Spirit of God gives you boldness to speak the word of God to power with power to somebody who needs to hear it. It's that Holy Spirit of God that gives you that assurance that one day God will redeem your body when you die. Again, the question is not, do you have all of the Holy Spirit? The question is, does he have all of you? The late Dallas Willard gives a great illustration of the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. He writes, as a child, I lived in an area of Southern Missouri without electricity. But in my senior year of high school, the Rural Electrification Administration extended its power line into the area where we lived and electrical power became available to households and farms. When electrical power came to our farm, a very different way of living presented itself. Our relationships to the fundamental aspects of life, daylight and dark, hot and cold, clean and dirty, could be vastly changed for the better. But we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangements. We had to understand them and take the practical steps involved in relying upon electricity. Now, you may think this comparison rather crude, but it will help us to understand Jesus' basic message about the kingdom of heaven. If we pause to reflect on those farmers who in effect heard the message, repent for electricity is at hand. Repent or turn from your kerosene lamps and lanterns, your ice boxes and cellars, your foot pedaled sewing machines, and your radios with batteries. The power that could make their lives far better was right there near them where they were, making relatively simple arrangements they could utilize it. Strangely, a few of those farmers did not accept it. They did not enter into the kingdom of electricity. <laughs> Some just didn't want to change. Others could not afford to, or so they thought. You know, in 2 Peter 2.13, Peter says, by God's divine power, he has granted to you everything you need for life and godliness. That everything you need for a supernatural life, an abundant life, is the Holy Spirit of God. Our subject for the entire month of June is this, unstoppable power. It's a study about the first century Christians who witnessed the birth of the church. Now, in a moment, David will explain how you can receive the CD and DVD recordings of this teaching series on Acts chapters 1 through 12. You'll hear how to receive the unedited version of this series in just a moment. The key to becoming unstoppable in your faith is revealed in the book of Acts. It requires embracing the Holy Spirit just as our forefathers did. And I've written a brand new book to guide you. It's also called Unstoppable Power. 
When you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory, I'll make sure to send a copy to your home right away. Remember, when you give a generous gift today, it will be automatically matched and therefore doubled because of the matching challenge. Your generous gift today of, say, $100 would be matched until it became $200. A $500 gift will be matched and doubled until it becomes $1,000. You get the idea. Some are able to contribute actually much more than that. At the end of this matching challenge, Pathway to Victory will invest these resources into sharing this message far and wide. Your personal investment will be used to declare the name of Jesus with boldness and without apology. Here's David with all the details, and I look forward to hearing from you today. David? Thanks, Dr. Jeffress. You're invited to request the brand new book, Unstoppable Power, when you give a generous gift to support the ministry of Pathway to Victory. Give us a call, 866-999-2965, or visit our website, that's at ptv.org. Now, when you give an especially generous gift of $75 or more, we'll also include the complete Unstoppable Power teaching series on audio and video discs, plus a study guide to use for personal or group study. Don't forget, your gift right now will be doubled in impact through our Unstoppable Power Matching Challenge. So be sure to get in touch right away. Call 866-999-2965 or go to ptv.org. You could also send your request by mail. Write to P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas 75222. One more time, that's P.O. Box 223-609, Dallas, Texas 75222. I'm David J. Mullins. The world has seen many great preachers throughout the centuries, but only one preacher holds the honor of delivering the greatest sermon of all time. Discover who that is Tuesday on Pathway to Victory. Pathway to Victory with Dr. Robert Jeffress comes from the pulpit of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas.